Today I want to preach about wisdom and how human beings have understood wisdom, how Christian people have understood what wisdom means, what kind of interior self-regulation do we need to cultivate the practical wisdom that is important to us, uh, both to ourselves and our relationship with one another, and how do we understand the wisdom that's expressed uh, in the gospel today where Jesus speaks about the necessity of suffering for the Messiah, but also by extension uh, for human beings to make sense out of whatever adversity and difficulty they go through, and uh, is there any wisdom that comes from uh, that experience, and how might we think about what what it means? So we're reading again from Proverbs, and Proverbs is the oldest book in a collection of books in the Hebrew Bible called the Wisdom Literature. And uh, so Proverbs is like in Sports Talk Radio, they talk about uh, Proverbs is old school. The old school view of wisdom. And the nice thing about this section is, is that it's all about woman wisdom because the word wisdom is a feminine word. And certainly in the Greek literature, It's a feminine word in the Septuagint, the Greek uh, Old Testament, and so forth. So when you, uh, if you know somebody whose name is Sophia, that means wisdom in Greek. So that just hope we all have to live up to our names, right? In some way or another, one hopes. So Sophia, and we're talking about woman wisdom, who's saying these things. Here, if you do this, This is what the consequence is of what it is that you're doing. Wisdom, uh, in woman wisdom's view, also has something to do with saying uh, most of the difficulties and the adversity that you face is of your own making. Do you believe that? I think it's probably mainly true. Most of the things that we do, the suffering that we endure, is self-generated. Now, if you're talking about a conversation about the nature of wisdom and its evolution in the history of ideas and the people who were alive when these books were written, there are some other suggestions that are present in the wisdom literature. Proverbs speaks about, if you do this, this is the consequence. Or, uh, most of the suffering and the difficulty that you face is of your own generation. You make, you cause it. But in Job, Job was afflicted by God. And he was, he was suffering not because of anything he did. And so the question is, that sometimes happens, doesn't it? And if we think about the realities that we live in in our culture and time, there are often a a lot of us who uh, uh, suffer as the result of forces that are beyond our control and that we didn't make. We didn't cause. And so uh, that's an important thing. You know, I grew up in a family who, they didn't say this in the most in the sort of draconian way that a lot of their friends did, but it was like, you know, people who are poor and dispossessed, it's their own fault. They would just pick their socks up and straighten up and fly right. 
everything would be okay. Right? To take some personal responsibility. And it is important to take personal responsibility. But sometimes things happen and they spin out of control and there are other forces at work and Job found that out. And the, the whole idea of this was uh, if you do this to Job, he's a good man, but we can get him to curse you. Thus Satan says to God. We'll talk about Satan in the gospel. So there's something there about, well, there's a, a way that we can get him to do this. And he gets pretty close to it in the story. And then all of his stuff is restored to him at the end. But it's interesting about how things happen. So in the time of the writing of the wisdom literature and maybe into the world, the Greek thinking and uh, how we move forward, uh, wisdom can be understood also as technical skill, the art of government, simple cleverness, the practice, practical skill of coping with life, and the pursuit of a lifestyle of proper ethical conduct. In Greek philosophy, uh, the virtues, you know, justice, temperance, prudence, uh, prudence is the most important one because it's the regulator of, of, of the use of your wisdom with regard to temperance and justice and fortitude, the four cardinal virtues. Cardinal virtues come from the Latin word cardo, which means hinge. So that means that these virtues were understood to be things that, uh, hin everything hinged on our, our ability to be able to practice them, right? And so Aristotle would say, you all, all of us are called to be excellent, arete, in what we do and in the practice of the virtues. So those are some ways of understanding wisdom. Now, in corporate life, uh, what kind of self-regulation is necessary uh, to do this sort of thing? And what kinds of things crop up uh, in ordinary human interaction that um, cause people sometimes to suspend or ignore the wisdom and the, the practical wisdom that they've learned. So we have the letter uh, of James that we read today, and it talks about the tongue. That the tongue can bless and the tongue can curse. So how do we understand the necessity to bridle our tongue? Now, you know, when you read anything, even outside of the biblical witness, when you read stuff like this in the New Testament, or people in the early church begin to make rules and regulations about customs and practices in the life of the church, the only reason you're doing that is something is going on at the present moment that you don't think should continue, right? And so you pass some sort of a canon that says, uh, a deacon may not celebrate the Eucharist. Okay? That's a rule. And it's true. They can't, still. So you create these rules because you have things happen. So if this is a general letter on ethical conduct in the life of the church, in other words, 
It can be read in any location in the Christian church, in the assembly, not just whoever it originally was for. It's to deal with certain things that we all know are true, and that is, is that we don't control our speech. That we're capable of gossip. That we're capable of uh, passing on stories and innuendos. It has never ceased to amaze me. And I am I'm, I'm capable of this myself. Someone comes and tells you a story about somebody. Well, you know, she did this or he did this. And you believe them. <laughs> you believe what they've told you is the truth. Right? Well, maybe... You know, I mean, if somebody commits murder and you see it and you say so, I guess they commit murder. But the, but the fact of the matter is, is that most of the time people attribute motives to other people or they say this is what they did or this is how they said, or I've heard that they da-da. And so we pass this stuff on. So James is speaking about this because it probably was a common practice when James or whoever the author was wrote the epistle. Right? So not much has changed. Parish life, A.D. 78. Okay, or whenever the epistle of James is written. 64. I don't know. It's just the way things, people are. So the use of practical wisdom has something to do with custody. My, the dean of my seminary, the first year I was there, every first year student at Neshota House then had to take a class called ascetical theology, which is the 25 cent term for how to say your prayers 1A. So we were taught all of the varieties of how to pray, what these things meant, all of the schools of prayer, how all of this was supposed to be uh, conducted and so forth. And Dean Parsons used to talk about something called custody. It's an old-fashioned term in the Catholic spiritual life. Custody of the eyes is an example. Custody of the tongue. That you're to exercise some control over this when you're um, I have been an associate of the Society of St. John the Evangelist, which is a community of uh, religious in the Anglican Communion uh, in this country. They're based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Their monastery is right next to the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. And I've been an associate of that, group, that order since 1971. And there was a wonderful monk, uh, he's dead now, who used to come and visit Neshota, and he came to the parish I was in in Arizona, and he came to Christchurch, South Toledo, to visit Father David Clayton. And he used to say, you're standing around, talking to people, and somebody starts to gossip or tell tales, you walk away. Walk away. You know, I would give it odds, certainly me, I didn't walk away as much as I should have. <laughs> and I, I gave my fair share of commentary on all of the things that went on. And so it causes difficulty. 
You know, there are ways in which uh, communities can uh, work on this together, you know. They can work on not uh, telling tales or if somebody says something to somebody that we have a rule that it doesn't have any meaning or force or effect until somebody goes directly to the person about whom they're speaking. He says, this is what, this is what uh, was said, right? So that requires a certain amount of uh, fortitude to be able to do this, but it's important to do it. And James is speaking about the necessity to do this, and he goes and gives all sorts of metaphors and similes about um, what it is uh, in terms of the custody of the tongue. That's a very in interesting thing. Think about our public discourse we're in a situation now where people, political candidates, get up and seem to think they can just say what they say stuff, that, you know. And the thing that bothers me about it is, is that there are a lot of people when you're sitting in front of your television and you're watching that, you go, that's right, he really said, you know, nobody can say that, but he's just said what is absolutely the truth about this whole situation. You know, and we live in a city, you know, that's... It's extremely attractive and beguiling, you know. But it's only, it's not even half true most of the time. And it's insulting and demeaning. And people just uh, think it's okay, you know. It's a good thing probably we have moved from maybe the way it was, say, at the time of George Washington. You know, George Washington was one of these people. He read a book when he was young about how a public person is supposed to behave, how you're supposed to behave in public, how you're supposed to be in public. doesn't matter what your personal character is. It has to do with how you act and what you do and uh, that you uh, put on a f some a face of propriety and reserve and all of these kinds of things. If some reporter today went up to George Washington and asked him if he was guilty of sexual misconduct, he would have had his sword through the guy before he completed the question. <laughs> so maybe there's been a little bit of development with that regard, with regard to that, but one needs to be careful. Custody of the tongue is an important, is an important thing. Part of this is the uh, uh, internet era where you can tell people things without any consideration and so forth. Uh, Jaron Lanier, in his book, You Are Not a Gadget, talks about uh, the kinds of things people are capable of doing on the Internet in terms of sending messages to people, what they'll say to them. It's a, it, it's a kind of soul murder that can take place uh, without thinking and completely without any scruple of any kind. It's a serious thing. So it's custody of the of this tongue, custody of the pen, custody of the text, and custody of the email. Maybe we need to expand that in 2015. So today we have a, a Mark's version of, of Peter's declaration to Jesus that he is the Messiah. 
And Jesus tells his disciples that the Messiah must suffer many things and be raised. So if you're back in their thought world, you would say to yourself, wait a minute, all the messianic promises that we have been taught as faithful Jews are that the Messiah is going to come and the Messiah is going to be uh, like King David and King Solomon, the great days of Israel. And he's also going to be priestly. He's going to feed us. He's going to offer uh, sacrifices on our behalf. He's going to redeem the people. And you're telling us that he's going to suffer. And he's going to be killed. It was probably an incomprehensibility then that somebody would say such a thing like that. So Jesus says this after Peter identifies him using some messianic titles. And then when Jesus says this, he said, God forbid don't I, that this will happen. And Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. So a reminder, I've said this before, the word Satan in the Bible does not mean the devil. It means the advocate. Advocate. It's also a word that's used for the devil, but it means advocate. It's the Satan who tells God to, to afflict Job. You know, kind of a capricious activity, which is a whole other issue in terms of how we understand God. Is he capricious or not? But in any case, Jesus says this. Now, why do you think... You know, sometimes when somebody like Peter, who clearly supports Jesus and he loves Jesus and he doesn't want Jesus to be killed and he doesn't want Jesus to suffer, uh, can give Jesus real worries, anxiety, and fear. And what it's about is whether or not I should forsake what my calling is. Should I not do what I'm called to do? The church spent 400 years talking, I've talked about this, uh, talking about whether or not Jesus went through a moral development, like all of us do or are supposed to, which means not only uh, good, goodness, truth, and beauty, but it has a lot to do with get up and brush your teeth. In other words, did Jesus go through a process of socialization? So they had these things and, and writings and we got all the church father, all the stuff. And the ultimate conclusion was, yes, he did. He went through a moral development. He's a human being just like we are. So he, his vocation, his messianic vocation had to go internally through, through a, a development for him to understand it in depth to what was at stake for the things that he was going to say and how he was going to understand the redemption of Israel and how he was going to live in a way congruent with God's purposes for the, the, the people of the covenant. And one of the most sensational things that was coming to him, even though sometimes he acted as though it wasn't so, was that this message is for everybody. It's for everybody. It isn't just for the people of the covenant. But somehow we have to model this for others. We have to be uh, way showers. So I suspect Jesus' 
uh, response was also one of saying, oh, don't remind me of those things. I don't want to think about it. What's ahead? But I know this is how I'm going to proceed. So maybe some of us uh, have been or are in situations where we have to do that now, not in the extreme sense that we're talking about here or the t terms of the global sense that we're speaking about here, but just in terms of uh, your life and your, your, your uh, career and your family and all of those things. How do I understand the necessity to uh, follow the way I think I need to go in certain areas? Now, the good news about all of this, of course, is that at the end of all of this sacrifice and adversity is the resurrection, is transformation and new life. A, a lot of the writers on the spiritual life uh, for many centuries have always said it is probably not, in spite of the behavior of a lot of people who think they're being pious, it is not a wise plan to seek out suffering or to inflict it on yourself. Right? Now all of us know people who have been enjoying their suffering for many years. Uh, I think we get addicted to it myself. I think we get addicted to our suffering in adversity, our depression, all of the emotional difficulties that we have because it's what we know, you know. But the fact of the matter is, is that um, when we do that, we somehow lose sight of what the end is. And sometimes there is suffering that isn't redemptive, and you and, you and I need to know that. Many times, it's what it says in Proverbs. The non-redemptive suffering is the suffering itself. Right? So that's a lesson that we learn. So this week, uh, give thanks for the wisdom you have acquired through all of the things that you've gone through and the things that you've learned, both difficult and hard and commonplace and uh, aff affirmative. Think about the uh, custody of the tongue and the opportunity that you have to um, resist letting it rip. You know, easy to say, hard to do. I, I'm good, but I just thought of something. When I was 15 years old, I remember this as clear as a bell. My mother said something to me or did something that made me so angry, I simply didn't know what to do. And I went into my room and I said, if I ever have any children of my own, I will never do what has just been done to me. I am making a solemn vow to myself that I will not do this. I, my indignation was so righteous it would have made you groan. <laughs> so, I, as it turns out, I do have children of my own. And when I would be tired, worn out, here's the thing. Never get too hungry, never get too angry, never get too lonely, and never get too tired. Right? So when all of those things happen, uh, as George Thorogood and the Destroyers, in his song, you go with what you know. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
did the same darn thing, right? So think about how subtle this this works, and uh, how God's uh, saving power can help you not do that. Amen. Amen.